Previously on Flying the Line, the inauspicious start of the Duffy administration and the emergence of Frank Lorenzo. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. Alpa supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including the official Alpa app. Download the app for the latest news, easy access to KCM locations, jump seat information, news from your LEC and MEC, and more. It's even got the orange card and an e-version of your member ID. Visit alpa.org apps to download, or search Alpa app in your smartphone's app store. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 10, Part 1. Who are these guys? Frank Lorenzo and his kind. In the Hollywood classic Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, two train robbers find themselves pursued relentlessly by a new and mysterious group of lawmen. They can only glimpse this group in the distance. The outlaws try every trick in their considerable bag to throw these trackers off their trail. As they flee, Butch and Sundance mutter repeatedly to themselves, who are those guys? In the 1980s, airline pilots would find themselves in a similar situation. Instead of a shadowy posse, airline pilots would find themselves pursued by a new gang of corporate executives. These CEOs were intent on making fundamental changes in pilot pay and working conditions, and were something different in the history of the industry. In the old days, managers tended to be real airline people, as fascinated by aviation as any pilot. Even some of the legendary old management curmudgeons, like Pat Patterson of United, a Wells Fargo banker from San Francisco, eventually became real airline people. The new corporate wheeler dealers who entered the airline business in the 1970s were quite different. Their natural setting was the boardroom not airline operations. Airplanes were just another tangible asset to them, something to manipulate, not admire. They saw the working people who made the industry function only as targets. For these airline executives, only the bottom line mattered. Nothing was intrinsically wrong with managers who made profit and efficiency their priorities. Historically, If management had not paid attention to these concerns, no airline pilot would have been secure in the profession. But the old breed of managers had paid their dues and earned the confidence, or grudging respect, of those who worked for them. Owing to the pro-labor political climate that marked most of these years, the old managers generally played by the rules, honoring the concept of equitable give-and-take when dealing with their employees. The new breed held these old standards in contempt. Their attitude toward unionized employees was something the pilots who built ALPA had experienced in their time. Pioneer airline managers were often mean bottom-liners, too. But pilots never had any doubts about those managers' ability to run an airline. What worried pilots most about this new class of managers was their basic incompetence. Who were these CEOs? 
and where did they come from? As the era of deregulation dawned, this new managerial group was positioned to assume a dominant role in the airline industry. Many of them were only in their 30s, often recently graduated from prestigious MBA programs. They did not have practical experience with airlines and often seemed to believe that the industry began with them and that the lessons of the past and its accumulated wisdom had no relevance. By the early 1980s, as the country slipped into recession and large numbers of airline pilots found themselves either furloughed or in danger of losing their jobs through bankruptcy, this managerial trend became an issue for ALPA. It was so worrisome that it repeatedly surfaced in formal meetings as a topic of discussion. At the May 1982 Executive Board, J.J. O'Donnell remarked that unlike most American unions, airline pilots have historically participated in traditional management areas. Pilots, he said, could not afford to bury their heads and later blame poor management. Making matters worse, these new managers were awfully sure of themselves. They instituted a series of changes, both financial and operational, that left many grizzled veterans, in management and on flight decks, uneasy. That was true particularly in the ruinous price wars that marked the immediate post-deregulation period. But for pilots flying the line, the worst thing about the new breed of airline managers was that they gleefully broke the long-established rules of labor-management relations. As these corporate manipulators began to dominate airline boardrooms, questions would arise about their intentions, abilities, and background. Many of them came out of nowhere. The old idea that corporate executives should work their way up in an industry, learning the ropes, seemed to disappear. Airline chiefs suddenly began to emerge from schools of hotel management, shadowy Wall Street consulting firms, and increasingly, from the graduate schools of business administration. One thing they all shared, however, was the conviction that airline pilots were overpaid and underworked. The same went for ground support personnel and flight attendants. When Frank Lorenzo captured Continental in 1982, he clearly saw pilots as the most tempting target for establishing the cost advantage he believed in. And Lorenzo was by no means alone in this. At American Airlines, no longer part of ALPA, the Allied Pilots Association had already submitted to a humiliating B-scale forced upon them by Robert Crandall. The United Pilots, under pressure from Dick Ferris, had acquiesced in the infamous Blue Skies contract of 1981. Small wonder that professional airline pilots began looking back over their shoulders at people like Ferris and Lorenzo, wondering, as had Butch and Sundance, who are these guys? The question was legitimate. As deregulation became a reality after 1978, the future of the profession rested in the hands of this new managerial class. Did the United Pilots really deserve to have their fate decided by somebody like Dick Ferris? After graduating from high school in the 1950s, Ferris joined the Army, 
where he ran an enlisted service members club. When he left in 1962, Ferris entered Cornell University to study hotel management. By 1966, when Ferris was 29, he became the manager of a hotel in Chicago. To report that his rise in the hotel business was the result of his own drive, ambition, energy, and talent would be nice. Perhaps he had all these qualities. But the truth is that his rapid rise owed more to his close friendship with Edward Carlson, CEO of the Western Hotels chain, later renamed Weston Hotels. When United bought Weston Hotels in 1970, the vagaries of boardroom politics brought Carlson to the top of United itself. Dick Ferris trailed in his wake, at first managing the airline's food service operations. Within four years, he was president of the airline. In 1976, Ferris replaced Carlson and became United's CEO. It was quite a rise. In barely six years, Ferris had gone from supervising in-flight meals to running the entire corporation. His rapid rise was by no means unique. The 1980s saw the emergence of young hotshots with minimal qualifications. One thing they had in common was that they were all excellent talkers. But the man who defined this new class of managers was Frank Lorenzo. His verbal abilities outstripped all the others, earning him the nickname Frankie Smooth Talk. Who was Frank Lorenzo? The Texas International Pilots would be the first to find out. Texas International Airlines began life as Trans-Texas Airways in October 1947, flying DC-3s over the Houston-San Antonio-Dallas Triangle. Trans-Texas also had route extensions to several smaller Texas cities that fed into Braniff. However, Braniff feared all competition in its home Texas market and bitterly objected to them. Thus, Trans-Texas was in the original batch of second-level airlines that the Civil Aeronautics Board permitted to develop with a dual purpose. They provided limited competition for the main lines while also being feeders for them. In 1968, Trans-Texas became Texas International, or TXI, by taking advantage of the changes in the regional industry, winning the right to serve a route into Mexico. Along with their new status, regional airlines like TXI also faced new problems. In the late 1960s, the senior Trans-Texas pilots, several former World War II B-17 pilots who had grown up with the airline, saw their pilot group's numbers increase to more than 400 as DC-9s came on the line. Their route structure expanded accordingly. These senior pilots had organized Trans-Texas for ALPA in 1949, and, despite occasional problems with owner R.E. McCoggin, had lived in reasonable harmony with him. But the Civil Aeronautics Board's new policy of turning the former local service carriers loose to live or die in competition with the big carriers caused trouble. Frankly, the McCoggins were not equal to the challenge. As airline entrepreneurs, they were like bugs in amber, fixed in the past, incapable of changing their ways. 
By late 1969, TXI was in deep trouble, teetering on the edge of insolvency. The McCoggins sold out in 1969 to a group of investors called Minnesota Enterprises, which included Carl Polid, later famous as the owner of the Minnesota Twins. The investment quickly went sour. Polid and his associates paid $25 per share. Within a year, TXI stock was trading for less than $2 a share. Minnesota Enterprises needed help. They went through a series of managerial cycles while frantically trying to find someone who could run an airline. Enter Frank Lorenzo. In 1971, at the behest of Chase Manhattan Bank, which had money of its own tied up in TXI, 31-year-old Frank Lorenzo and his partner, Robert Carney, both recent Harvard MBA graduates, were sent down from New York as consultants. Previously, Lorenzo worked as a financial analyst for both TWA and Eastern, which seemed harmless enough. The chickens, in short, had no way of knowing that they had just invited the fox into their coop. By 1972, Lorenzo and Carney, having been paid $15,000 per month, completed their consultancy at TXI and delivered their recommendations. They said Minnesota Enterprises should let them buy the airline. Since TXI was sliding into financial ruin anyway, Polid and his associates agreed to a deal. It allowed Jet Capital, a company Lorenzo put together in 1969 with a total value of $50,000, to use money borrowed from the owners to acquire the airline. Lorenzo was off and running in the airline game, playing with other people's money. But he had a plan to pay the money back, one of such brilliant simplicity that Lorenzo was amazed nobody had thought of it before. The unionized employees of TXI would pay off the debt. Lorenzo, for all his faults, made no secret of his plans. He deviously led various employee groups to believe that he was after concessions only from other unions. At the time of his takeover, Lorenzo hosted a cocktail reception for TXI pilots at Houston's Intercontinental Hotel. Lorenzo flatly declared that, except for pilots, he intended to take the airline back to the employment levels of 1967. Since TXI's ground crew were unionized, this strategy meant that the airline was in for a long bout of labor strife. Lorenzo seemed eager to take on his unions. He proposed turning many of the baggage handlers and ticket agents into temporary employees, the bane of organized labor. He argued that many of TXI's outlying cities, which often had only one or two flights per day, had no need of full-time employees. He intended to hire part-timers to work only during those times when a flight was arriving or departing. Lorenzo persuaded the pilots that TXI could not survive if the profits earned by their labor continued being siphoned off by employees who mostly sat around doing nothing. The pilots, fully committed to their airline's success, 
wanted to be as supportive of Lorenzo as possible. They understood that his approach would stir resistance among ground employees, but they really were in no position to challenge Lorenzo until the ground unions, his first target, tested his strength. TXI's ground personnel were represented by the Airline Employees Association, or ALEA. Dave Benke had helped create the union in the early 1940s when he was trying to put together an umbrella of airline unions with himself at the head. ALEA was a relatively quiet union with a peaceful reputation. Lorenzo, confident that it was the weakest link in the union chain at his airline, at first focused his demands on only the ticket agents. Lorenzo honed his labor relations style and bargaining technique at the ALEA strike of 1974-1975. Basically, his plan was to divide and conquer, to negotiate endlessly, but to never agree to anything concrete. These tactics, which would become familiar, served to keep the gate agents in a state of constant turmoil and emotional distress. TXI pilots could only watch with anxiety, grateful that ALPA wasn't under assault. Nonetheless, Lorenzo's war on his ticket agents put the TXI pilots under pressure. Some pilots supported Lorenzo's demand for massive part-time working provisions from the agents. This would, of course, reduce expenses and make the airline more profitable largely by eliminating such things as retirement and health benefits. In December 1974, ALEA went on strike. ALPA and the International Association of Machinists, the other two major unionized groups at TXI, did nothing at first. Five days into the strike, Lorenzo ratcheted up the pressure hiring permanent replacements for the striking workers. Although badly divided about what to do, the pilots decided that Lorenzo's decision to hire scabs permanently was a direct threat to all TXI unionized workers. After an intense debate, the pilots joined the machinists and other TXI unionized workers in announcing they would honor ALEA's picket lines. Lorenzo promptly sued ALPA for $3 million, while simultaneously asking the court for an injunction, forcing the pilots to cross picket lines. Lorenzo would lose the legal battle, but win the war. In the 1970s, the legacy of previous Democratic presidential appointments to the federal bench meant that, ideologically, the courts were neutral, if not slightly pro-labor. On February 12, 1975, a federal judge in Dallas ruled that ALPA could legally honor ALEA's picket lines without violating its contract with TXI. Lorenzo, who had already announced that TXI would resume operations on February 13, 1975, had to hastily cancel. Had he won the injunction, he was fully prepared to begin hiring permanent replacements for pilots who refused to return to work. Lorenzo's actions would undoubtedly have triggered the kind of crossover crisis that the combined Texas International and Continental pilots 
would experience in 1983. While the courts stymied his plan to fly through the strike and shut down his airline, Lorenzo coolly took advantage of the airline industry's Mutual Aid Pact, or MAP, to keep TXI's coffers full. The MAP was the key to Lorenzo's strategy and eventual victory. Created in October 1958 by six airlines, the MAP was the industry's response to a series of successful strikes by ALPA and other unions in the 1950s. Under the terms of the original MAP, a struck carrier would refer its customers to one of the other PACT members and then receive back from those carriers payment equal to the increase in their revenues. Basically, the MAP functioned like a capital strike slush fund that other airlines would later join. During its 20-year history, ending with deregulation in 1978, the MAP was at best a mixed blessing for the airline industry. Responsible managers who negotiated fairly with their employees avoided strikes, paid vast sums into the MAP contingency fund, and got nothing back. But irresponsible managers could goad their employees into strikes and then take money out, thus earning profits while not flying. The MAP system was vulnerable to abuse. Until Lorenzo's emergence, no airline except Northwest had really misused it. Some careful airline industry observers believe Lorenzo's actions during the ALEA strike might have eventually caused the MAP to fall of its own weight. Next time on Flying the Line, The Rise of Lorenzo. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 10, Part 1 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2023, all rights reserved.